0: The history of our past is carried by those of us that are present, and that's just a, sort of a um, interesting tidbit about genetics that we are taking advantage of to find out what are the genetic roots of diseases.
1: Okay, now we're recording. Welcome to Max Depth, ladies and gentlemen. I'm joined with uh, my guest today, Malik. Thanks for being here. You were just talking about AI being like this critical turning point in the year 2023 uh, being a starting date. Do you want to just start there? Why? Why is uh why is AI happening now? Why is it just now entering the public consciousness? Um, and why is 2023 the start year? How is AI and bio going to converge? However, you want to take the question. Maybe introduce yourself. Um, feel free to kind of you know take control. Um, but yeah, thank you for being here, and uh, I hope to have a great conversation.
0: Oh yeah, it's 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 a pleasure, Max. Um, so just leading to right before the record button got started, um, I um appreciate what you, like the reason why you're having this podcast. That is to give a voice to this to this moment in time, uh, for future generations, which I think is quite important. As like 2023 is going to be a year to this historic. It's um going to be remembered. Um, of course, the pandemic uh, was clearly a moment at a touch point that's going to be remembered. But then just after that, 2023 is also going to be remembered um, specifically for the year that AI sort of um, sparked. Um, It's something that has been predicted, uh, but nobody nobody knew when it was going to happen. Um, It's something that you could see the momentum for, for for those of us particularly within the field uh, of incremental changes, but then every so often you have like a, a, a revolutionary change such as what happened in 2012, 2013.
1: Um, well, what do was the... Rev- to- yeah, do you, do you mind? What was the revolutionary change that happened in 2012, 2013?
0: Yeah, so um, it was a combination of two things. Um, I, so there was in 2012... Uh, there was a competition called ImageNet. And so the competition itself is very important. I'll get to that in a second, but I'll give you the outcome first. Um, That competition essentially invited uh, people from all different disciplines to be able to um, uh, distinguish pictures um, of of various objects, random objects like trains, trees, cars, tables, um telephones lamps all kinds of random stuff uh, and just the, the competitions who could who could be able to distinguish these pictures uh, with the most accuracy um, and before the you know all types of different like non-machine learning efforts like you know um bolson machines Monte Carlo simulations all those different approaches where the um different statistical approaches were the ones that were doing pretty well um and in 2012, an approach using a neural net, which had been in a competition before, but just wasn't doing as well. But 2012 just blew away the competition. Um, and it's one of those things where it's like not just blown away, but you could see that its max but peak potential was not even scratched yet. Um, and this was this this architecture was called AlexNet. Um, it was done by um a uh, guy whose first name is Alex, and um, um, I think they were, um, and his professor um, in the University of Toronto, um, Jeffrey Hinton, um, who then later on went to win the Turin Award 2018. Um, so this was a neural net that took in, um, in images and then was able to distinguish the cats and dogs very well, mm-hmm. um, more than any other um, approach that was available mm-hmm. um so they published that paper that year um and so this i it's really critical because when a story is told people forget about the importance of the competition itself they always focus on AlexNet. so AlexNet, the neural architecture that alex did had some innovations in it but much of that was already available but really made a change was ImageNet, which was founded by this professor um, at, at Stanford University. It's, she's a lady, and I can't remember her name right now off the top of my head. But she noticed that um, the lack of data is actually maybe the biggest hindrance to machine learning development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think around 2007, 2008, started to, uh, set up a system where you could scrape different data sets of image data sets in the internet them into one place that you could then
1: have, train models
0: um, on exactly and that is image she created image net and then there was an image of competition if, and, which we invited people to use the different architectures um uh, so, uh, 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 so, exactly. so image net is the training set exactly image is the training Very set cool. as well as the, the competition so without yeah. the image training set there is no alex net yeah Right. yeah that's very so the innovation actually was an amount of data mm-hmm. um which has um, amazing parallels to the moment we happen in right now so it just postponed 10 years so 2012 13, we're now in 2023 um and the large language models that have been given everybody like um you know the new cycle the zeitgeist who can fully occupied with them um such as chat GPT and so forth having that emergent properties that sometimes looks like Consciousness and things like that right um sorry I have got a cold so just let me blow my nose real it's okay quickly. yeah no go ahead yeah. um yeah so, so today um we have uh so GPT one gpt2 and so forth right created by um by um um open AI in California um so those models were pretty, they were not that great. And you could you could see, like, you know, they have all kinds of errors and they look kind of silly sometimes when they try to speak. Um, but you could see the, the, the momentum change. Um, the fundamental architecture that created them was done all the way in 2017. Uh, Attention Networks, by like Google came out, and then they borrowed from another paper in 2014, but that's another story. Attention is all you need. That paper came out in 2017. So the architecture that you need that's making what's the latest and greatest today was already sorted out five years ago or six years ago. What a difference between GPT 1, 2, and 3 is the amount of data. Like mm-hmm. Much like AlexNet, increasing the amount of data made the change that allowed AlexNet to become so good at distinguishing cats and dogs mm-hmm. in 2013. Well, the same thing here. We just had more and more data. So when folks figured out, oh, if we scrape all of Reddit, if we scrape all of Twitter, if we scrape all of Wikipedia and so forth, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, language models start to have this capacity that looks like consciousness um that is what what that was basically the magic formula just more data Mm -hmm. Uh, which is
1: pretty incredible that the 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 same the same kind of structure just fed fed with more more data uh led to such like such incredibly uh better results incredible
0: exactly like emergent properties right it's um and also so this this is so the like, zeitgeist like so like this week's news for instance is like reddit as well as twitter shutting down the access to people using their data and the reason is that all of a sudden realize that oh my goodness we have this gold mine of data that people are other people are making billions from and we need to we want to make billions as well and hence mm-hmm. the internet as we know it is shutting down as we speak right now because of the data, the data, what do you call it, data mining, so to speak, that um, large language, large large language models need therefore, exponentially making anybody with a big data repository, such as Reddit or Twitter, uh, immensely invaluable.
1: Do you think that was part of the, the, like, the value that people saw in Web3? Like the, I know data ownership was a, like a big aspect of Web3, like, like, you will own your own data um is that like is that how the inner you just said the internet is what did you say internet having a meltdown or internet crashing something like shutting that down,
0: shutting for, down yeah. shutting shutting yeah, down closing up.
1: yeah what, what is what for what does that mean because i have i i don't feel the internet shutting down um maybe maybe i'm not as plugged in um, but what does that mean and is is what three solution yeah. or w- what is going to happen with like data ownership
0: Um, I mean, it's an interesting question. We'll all sort of on this ride, and we'll see where what we'll see along the journey. Um, I could tell you that, say, like town halls that were open to anybody mm-hmm. being able to come and participate. Um, I'm I'm pointing right at Reddit right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that depended upon people like you and I going into them and then and giving our voices to them. Um, that was a model that. Um, that like Reddit needed folks like us to go for Reddit to occur, right? Uh, for mm-hmm. Reddit to become what Reddit is. Subreddits are dependent on individual humans participating in, in the conversation. Um, so there's a bit of a, if if you look at incentive structure, uh, at some point, the incentives of, of the users versus the incentives of the hosts become misaligned. Um, so at first they are aligned where you have like these town halls there's a Twitter reddit you could even call Wikipedia town hall um you know aligned because they need you as much as you need them um, to to participate in in building out um a community um at some point though we enough of us users give so much information that that information itself independent of us is valuable. Mm-hmm. Right. so then it becomes much it makes much more sense for the for the host to close the gates on that particularly if, if you have other hosts that are coming in and feeding off of this repository of information that us users put together mm-hmm. right. so now our incentives are misaligned the company, the, the host wants to make, you know make use of this valuable resource and also doesn't like the fact that other hosts of uh scavenging on it mm-hmm. um so there's misaligned incentives um and web 3 i um i think philosophically wanted personalized um agency with data for for more libertarian reasons not for financial reasons but mm-hmm. now there's a potential that there could be alignment realignment of the user and web 3 technologies down the line um that that you know federated federate, federated versus for instance um could be an approach that allows users to be able to move between different town halls while maintaining all of their data mm-hmm. um i think threads apparently uses um some of that technology but it's hard to trust um anything coming from the, um from meta from historic yeah. reason um but they do use some aspect of the federated verse um, to um, to create threads. Um, but yeah, so we'll see how that plays out. Um, Web three right now is not getting the sunshine as it, as it did a few, um, just a year ago. Yeah, um, but but some of those core cool technologies could be useful down the line.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was pretty insane. Like, j- just even going back through history and you know, under, and then recognizing similar things in, in the present moment, like the bubbles were like that we saw on web three. And even, even in AI, I mean, I mean a lot of people say that AI is like a fundamentally different technology and I'm sure that we would argue that it, that it is, but some of the, like I just saw a company that raised like a $1.3 billion, um, without, without product that was just like just a founding team, um, so i don't i don't know if that's just like i don't know if that's part of the bubble or if that's just hype or people wanting to like get in early on stuff um but it's interesting to see um you know things play out like this so i guess i mean i i wanted to ask about uh how you get the we're talking about like data and data ownership so i figured i wanted to ask how you get the data to train like your like your company like is is genetic data open access i'd was trying to read up on the genome project I have questions about why the genome project failed um, and I also want to like kind of hear about your company mission um and kind of get into the get into that so I don't know is, is there a way you can you can kind of expand on that
0: yeah yeah so I mean I'll, I'll flip inverse what's the the order that you just said those things and go ahead cool. with um okay so my company's name is ecotone uh it's' It's um, a signature, It's like a small e, just like my first name has a small e, and then it has like a, a AI um, as an exponent. So we mm-hmm. we have um, ecotone exponential with AI. Um, that's the mind gate trick over there, um, or symbolism trick. Um, so we are a uh, we are a company uh, making AI designed medicines. Um, so just to give you some context to where we fit within the space of AI companies, um, you have um large language model companies that take in web data uh, as i mentioned before from you know websites like you know twitter and wikipedia and so forth and we are making similar models except we're just using genetic data so we are an ai company that just happens to use genetic data um and the reason why we are using genetic data or input genetic data into our models um these models are called large genome models, so LGMs. Just to contrast that with the large language models, which are LLMs. Um, so LGMs um, is new to the vernacular. I'm not sure if anybody else has used that name yet. So um, for future people, we we'll just record that um, well, as a say it again. LGM, large genome model. And,
1: and did you what was did you say another word after that?
0: Um, well, I could give you another one. V, <laughs> a VLM, vertical language model. I learned this one. This one I didn't point. Uh, VLM uh, belongs is a class of different um, large models that are specified to particular domains. So you could have a VLM which is like a large language model specific specified for finance. You could have a VLM specified for energy, um, yeah, electricity. And you can have a VLM specified for medicine. In this case, LGM fits underneath the. L, uh vlm um sub um, structure
1: i was just uh, i was just listening to a podcast i think it was with zuckerberg and lex friedman and um zuckerberg was uh saying that he thinks the future of of llms i guess are, are more similar to vlms and they're being like very specific like uh uh large language models for individual tasks tasks industries rather than like the chad gpt approach of kind of having an all-encompassing llm so you'll have like you know exactly what you just said it'll be like kind of vertically divided um so that's interesting okay please go on
0: yeah this is one when you know your next head in space when you're learning words every week yeah i like that yeah like we we're not just like like we are creating new words like lgm but also we're learning new words at the same time. That's just how fast things are moving. Um, yeah. It's quite exciting. Um, so, so, yeah, with, with Ecotone, uh, we, we are creating our uh, LGM because we foresee that we will be able to find out what are the genetic elements that are causing inherited diseases. Um, specifically, we're working with rare inherited diseases, but uh, inherited diseases in general is, is about 10,000 diseases that... There hasn't been. There's not much traction as far as ki- treatments or cures for most of these diseases, and many of them you've never heard about, um, and they haven't received much attention um, because uh, for any one of them, there's usually not enough people for pharmaceutical companies to think that it's worthwhile to pursue. Um, mm-hmm. So they have just been ignored by the pharmaceutical industry for for decades. Um, mm-hmm. And also, that's one thing, not enough people. The second thing is they just think it's too hard. Um, I'll give you a, a real-world example. So Pfizer, um, Pfizer, that I'm sure everybody knows from the COVID vaccines and so forth, um, they had a division on rare inherited diseases um, to try to find therapies and cures for them, and they shut it down in February 2023, so about six months ago, um, because... It was too hard, and in their press release, they said that they're going to focus on acquiring smaller companies that are better at it, rather than trying to innovate themselves.
1: Um, Interesting.
0: So it's 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 sort of representative, yeah. It's representative of the industry in general, um, and so we we feel like there's an opportune time and a space for us to be able to to do something special. Um, and in the case of Ecotone, uh, we're building this LGM. Um, which which is going to be a taken in genomic data from people from different parts of the world. Uh, there's like again architecture, um, like a connected database architecture that we'll be implementing, um, with the goal to look at gene flow across different heritages. Um, why do we want to look at gene flow across different heritages? Um, so the rationale for that comes from the fact that for any one of these inherited diseases, somewhere some somewhere um, back in time, um, could be hundreds of years or thousands, more than a thousand years, there was the first individual that had a change in the genome that, that manifested and caused them to have this disease. Um, so we call this like the founder, like the first founder. Um, and this founder had children, some of which carried on that genetic element. And then those children then had more children that then you know, carried on the element and so on mm-hmm. and so on with, with descendants. And of course, people do not stay in one place, like all these descendants didn't stay exactly where the founder was. People over time, in this time space of hundreds of thousands of years, people move across villages, cities, countries, continents. Yeah. Um, And whenever an individual uh, moves into a new space, uh, very likely that they probably would um, have children with somebody else from that new population. Um, and that's introducing that genetic element into that new population. Um, so mm-hmm. we call this this is uh, this, this is essentially gene flow, um, and it's a vector, right? So it gets like a vector from one population to another population.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so what we create an LGM is to be able to trace these vectors um, uh, of gene flow, and this is something you just couldn't do before. We had it um, like mentally available. Like, but you just couldn't do it before because you need a, a computational capacity to be able to handle genomes from all over the world, uh, thousands, possibly more than that, um, all over the world for you to be able to look at gene flow across the world.
1: So are um, you getting, are you, are? Does, doesn't that require genetic data from like, from, you know, generations ago?
0: No. So luckily, all the history of past generations is carried by us today. Right um if you if you think of it um whenever, yeah. yeah whenever um it's like a whole new field actually of of um, genomic archaeology or um yeah archaeology that's that is quite robust and going on separate from what from um um what biocotones is doing but we uh, have related sort of thinking uh, but every one of us carries the history of our descendants So we carry half of the history of our parents, we carry a quarter of the history of our grandparents, and we carry, uh, you know, and so on and so on, right? Um, So that's just that lineage right behind you. But then if you now combine that with like your sister or your brother and then your uncle, and then, you know, um, your your neighbor that happens to be of the same heritage as you, you all of a sudden start to see most of the history of all of yours past collectively, right? so, which is fascinating because folks have been uh, now able to do like really wonderful studies, um, like going back um, to like 23Me on steroids. Um, like, for instance, being able to trace back when did the people from, from East Asia migrate into Taiwan and then go south into Polynesia, then go down to um, Papua New Guinea and so forth. And then just again using genetic means, start guessing at how many attempts does it take for you to jump from somewhere in the polynesian from 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 like papua new guinea or um the philippines so forth to one of the small islands like how how long how many times and how many people do you need to jump to Vanuatu or to fiji or to the salomon islands um just using genetics uh, of people living today um And then, of course, combined with some you know some genetics of people that have that whose DNA was recovered from the past to sort of um, support the data. Uh, But the history of our past is carried by those of us that are present, and that's just sort of a um, interesting tidbit about genetics that we are taking advantage of to find out what are the genetic roots of diseases.
1: That's a beautiful idea. Like, I mean, in the genetic sense, it's unbelievable that that's a thing. I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious. Um, But the fact that we're able to track that is just, is beautiful. But then going beyond that, um, I think there's something to be said about, you know, us carrying the, like, ideas uh, from the past and being incorporated in ways that we don't fully understand. And us, I I like thinking about uh, ourselves, like, everyone um, being, you know, part of this long lineage and immersed in history. And, you know, we're eventually going to be... Um, the ones being trapped and, uh, we're part of this, like we're in the middle of this long chain and I think it's easy for people to feel kind of disconnected. You know, there's tons of reasons why that is, whether it's social media whatever. Um, but just what you were saying, I just love that. Um, and like tracing the history of ideas is, is one thing and, and beautiful in its own right, but, uh, it just seems like a whole new avenue, um, to, Kind of explore our past so that's really really interesting um yeah it's, so, it's, it's
0: quite fascinating
1: yeah so so um can we go can we go to the human genome project and why um why that wasn't the kind of tour de force world changing project that people suspected it to be in the time and why why is now is different is. Is it the, it has the, is the data set the problem or um, or is it like the tools that we're using to analyze that data, uh, the kind of the, the switch?
0: Yeah, um, so th- several of those, um, let me see how I can best frame this. Um, okay, so best, uh, maybe it's best, it's best to just give some context um, and give some credit as well um, to the development of a C. elegans genome. So I'm going to give um, specific credit to this to the group of scientists that work with C. elegans. Um, C.
1: C. elegans. C.
0: Yeah. C. Period. Elegans. E. L. E. G. A. N. S. Um, so C. elegans is a organism. It's like it's like a. Um, tiny nematode uh, or worm um, that is it's it's so small you have to like if one of them is on your finger you have to get your get it really close to your eyes to see it Um, Mm -hmm. they're transparent they generally are foragers they live like underneath trees um, and like when like fruits fall down they're part of the decomposition process is where they get their food from Um, Mm -hmm. so imagine like like fall leaves um, and if you if you shift all of those like yellow leaves on the ground it should be like C. elegans in the soil. Um, okay. So just have to give some credit because the Human Genome Project was a derivative or derived or inspired by the work of C. elegans researchers um, that they they were the first to create a um, like a whole genome of, of um, um what do you call it? So there's, of course, yeast people I, I believe did that similar thing but uh, of a metas, they were able to do a C, the whole genome of a metazoan. I think that's what it was, and that came out in nineteen ninety eight, I believe. Um, so with that baseline, um, you are then able to just quickly scale and do human genome, which came out in two thousand one, right? Um, so just just some names. Um, the reason why I'm saying this is because I work directly with people that were part of that. So Martin Shafi um, at Columbia University is a Nobel Prize laureate, um, as well as his tribe of people at that time, um, when they were um, much younger, um, did all of that heavy lifting that then allowed the human genome to come um, to come about. So the same
1: tools that they were using in 1998 to sequence the genome of the organism C. elegans were the same tools that we use um, used in 2001 to uh, sequence the human genome. And are they still the same tools, We same type of tools we use now or have they have they changed? Yeah,
0: So, so exactly. So C. elegans continues to lead a charge. With, with, in um, g- um, innovation and genome space, and this is Ecotone benefits from that. Since I spent six years of my life studying, g- basically discovering genes for a profession as a day, as a day job. Um, but yeah, just back to 1998 to 2020 um, 2021, 2001. Um, the news cycle, if you go back, goes um, focuses on the fight between the scientists from all around the world. You, you have on one particular approach, and then um, Solera, uh, I think by Craig Venter sort of having this other approach. Um, and then, to, you know, at some point they call it a tie or whatever it is. And that's much of that is, has some truth to it. But it also there's a lot of you need to recognize that, OK, there was n- neither of those groups will be there if like the elegans people didn't put the, to, didn't put the groundwork to allow them to, to start their race, so to speak. Okay. Um, and so C. elegans uh, as a community just just keeps racking up Nobel Prizes and. Um, you know, Craig Mello with RNAi and, you know, Bob Horowitz, uh, Sydney Brenner with, um, you know, program cell death, which is the most important thesis regarding how cancers develop um to date. Um, and this is because C. elegans people are just good at really one thing, really good at one thing, genetics. Right. And this enables neuroscience. This enables uh, gastro studies, um, cell biology and so forth, all these other different ways. Um, and so they, they showed their proficiency in 1998 with making the first metazoan genome, and, and then have that C. elegans genome has been used quite well in discovering new things that are applicable across organisms into people. We just didn't see the same thing with the human genome, I think because of a lot of structural issues with how people think about genetics as or just or about medicines in general. Um, there's a mental, mental hurdles, I would say. Um, so I'll just give you an example. To this day, lots of lots of scientists, and this this is just this is philosophical differences, lots of scientists focus much of their studies on proteomic studies. Um, and there's a lot of discoveries and Nobel Prizes and medicines that have come out of that as well. Uh, but as as we are to what we the anticipation was when a human genome was discovered, we'll have drugs for all kinds of diseases very soon. That hasn't manifested, and I believe part of that is because many of us within the scientific community across different disciplines are just on the wrong stack. So imagine, like the first, the lowest stack is your genetics, then the mm-hmm. second stack is your RNA level, then your third stack is your protein level, then your fourth stack is like a cell cellular combination, right? So you choose where you play. Your, your playground is at, right? Most scientists operate at the protein level. And the cellular level, Um, this includes me when I was getting my PhD, I was interested in memory and was learning about Alzheimer's disease. Um, Mm -hmm. I um, I spent my entire time focused on proteolytic and cellular mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease Um, around my fourth or fifth year, I started to get more I guess, questioning question, question, question the whole approach, which led me to to, to come to, to New York City, to Columbia, and work with Martin Shafi for those six years. Um, and what what basically what he he had, he said, I'm gonna, he didn't say this, but he basically reprogrammed me. He's like, you have to stop studying diseases. If you're gonna learn genetics, if you're gonna move from this third and fourth stack to the to the lowest stack, the genetic stack, you have to stop thinking about diseases. Right. So, so imagine, I guess, spent five years and a half of my life uh, learning Put my 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 life blood and soul into learning something, and then I move into this other space. It's like, if you want to know the space you care about, you have to let it go. <laughs> you literally have to let it go and go to the go to the come to the bottom stack, uh, the base stack, so to speak. Learn how genes work. Learn how to operate how they operate genes. Learn to do the tricks that C. elegans people that, that have been harvesting and learning from the from the C. elegans genome at a much better rate than humans. So learn that how to do that. Um. And I was fortunate enough or dumb enough to to just to go with it, um, and I very quickly on I started to see just the approach that we take is the stack that you play in is so important for seeing things above the baseline. The Lego blocks of the genome are critical for what happens at the RNA level. Are critical for what happens at the protein level. Um, and of course, reporting level as well as the RNA level ma- manipulate and modify what happens at the genomic level, but it all starts at the genomic level up. And then there's downstream things that come down back to it, but you, could, you, could, you should be able to mani- look at that at the genetic level as well. If you get like a full understanding of a genetic level, all the um, control of the other stacks, you should be able to have an understanding of. So,
1: so you're able to kind of, you're able to starting at that base stack. That's how, how, how do you, how do you add structure to that? How do you relate the, I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm sure this has been, you know, studied and is ongoing. Um, but when you're going from like the DNA level, um, all the way up to diseases, how like, and you're, and you're talking about designing, designing medicines, like, how do you, how do you merge across that entire stack? How do you, do you need to work across the entire, like span the entire gamut of going from like the, like the, the genetic level all the way up? How, how do you, how do you manage that? Or, or can you just, can you just stay in your little in, in the playground, not little, the massive playground of, of genetics and, and work within that? Or do you need to take in the larger picture?
0: yeah yeah so really great question um and i just want to just qualify what i just said um i had lunch with with, with martin shelby he goes by marty um last just last week and he reminded me that this there's, there's a few exceptions to this which is of course like maternal effects things um so like an oversight or egg like in, in like you know um uh, in a lady or in an, any animal um has his, his genome that controls a lot of things but it's just usually it's a massive cell body that has Stuff from the from the, from the mother that uh, proteins and RNAs and all these you know and these these cause what I call maternal effects that could supersede what's happening at the genomic level, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so, but consider that a little effect to the large effect of the genome itself. Okay. Right? Um, so at the, at the very high stack, so you have your your, your gene level, you have your uh, RNA level, you have your protein level, you have your cell level, and then let's just skip levels to like your phenotype level. So somebody that is sick, they have a phenotype, right? Uh, they have... Well,
1: uh, so wait, so we, can, we not, can we not skip those levels? So it's, it's genetic, RNA, protein, protein, cellular, and then what? In, intracellular... Like and then does it get up into tissue? No, no that's like just, No,
0: so then you have like multicellular, so like an organ, um, and then you have multiple organs. You know, then you have like
1: your whole body um, and so forth, right? So, um, so what's what's so, the one? What's the stack below phenot? Right below phenotype, because phenotype is the expressed um, visual changes, right? Question.
0: Like- yeah. So, exactly. So, a change in any one of those stacks will cause a phenotype, right? Um, and there's, of course, environmental phenotypes to so say like you um, you're smoking cigarettes yeah. um, and that will cause a phenotype that's independent of your genetics. Um, um, so we don't we, could tell we don't focus on that side of things. Mm-hmm. We focus on what are things that are inherited. So we know because it's inherited, we know it's, it has some element of genetic capacity to it. Mm-hmm. Um, then the phenotype, yeah, it could, it could the phenotype could occur at multiple different levels. So there's system-wide, like, like failures uh if you say you, you don't have like one of your genes for collagen or some something structural is, uh, is unavailable so you have you know um there's different o- multi-organ failures that will occur let's say in kids that or babies infants that that have a defective gene um so the, ex- the expression at every stage is just not well the rna level is fine the protein level is not fine and then the cellular level is not even less fine. This, yeah, um, it even and yeah, it degrades even
1: further. Exactly.
0: Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, so you could spend much of your time studying about how this, you know, how that organ is failing. You could spend a ton of time, your lifetime spending on what is the proteins that are that are what, how they're defective, how the electrostatic interactions with other proteins or receptors um, um, are different. Uh, or you could just find out what is the change in the genome. Um, so I belong to that ethos of what is a change in the genome that explains the rest mm-hmm. uh, and then once you once you go and see how the information then you could go ahead and start doing things that are that look that are quite interesting so you have your a, a series of uh, medications that you could then design uh, So the ones that we favor um gene editing molecules, particularly CRISPR, um CRISPR Cas9 which, um, and I'm pretty sure most people probably listening to this are familiar with. Um, there's, um, there's of course, and then CRISPR encased like a lipid nanoparticle. So this is sort of borrowing a bit from like the COVID nineteen drugs. Um, th- those vaccines were all mRNAs that were encased in a lipid nanoparticle. You know, lipid nanoparticle just a fancy word for a soap, like your bathroom soap molecule. That's that's. Um, that is um sort of made very granular and is able to like the bubbles within it are able to hold in biological molecules that are important for therapy. Like, okay, so it's like it,
1: a so yeah so that was the, a lot so, so, yeah so tell me no, tell me no, any, yeah no no yeah. no okay so wait so the so the soap is a drug drug delivery mechanism because I was I had a conversation okay. with um so with a I, I forget his name a guy a professor out in California that was doing um dna origami and part of what it was was uh it was supposed to it's supposed to be a one application of it is a drug um basically uh delivery mechanism that when attack when uh binded to a very specific point um it basically opens up and releases the the drug or whatever is inside of it um i don't I'm, i'm i'm kind of thinking of it through that lens but it seems uh less like Kind of less sophisticated than that. So you, you were just drawing the parallel between um, of of gene editing and and the techniques we used, uh, the mRNA technique that we used um, for like the COVID vaccines.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's that's what the eventual product of what we at, of Ecotone wants is going to be created. So AI design medicines. What does that look like in a physical space? Uh, so, well, early on, we, we, we know we, what we want to do is find out what is the genetic element. Um, and then we, so we don't plan to like make factories that are making these medications. Um, this like lipid nanoparticles and so forth. We, because that's reinventing the wheel because other people are, are very good at that. So because of the, the pandemic, there's a crop of companies that have come about that are super hyper-specialized in making um, these medications at scale and have passed through all the regulatory hurdles and so forth. And what all they need from us, I was speaking to one of them, uh, what a member of one of one of them called Resilience, um, just two weeks ago. This is a company that became a unicorn based out of Florida just a few years ago. we being able to make these medications at scale. Um, and what they all they need from us is to tell them what to design. Um, so you have. And what they they say lipid nanoparticles, so the soap, soapy bubble inside of it contains contains your active ingredient, which is like your CRISPR molecule, or it could be your mRNA that you know that you need to replace some protein. Um and that has a DNA within the CRISPR molecule, there's like a gDNA, a guide, sorry, G, G RNA, guide RNA that is a homin molecule like that's the, the homes the CRISPR to the right part of your dna for it to be able to have some sort of therapeutic effect on a part of your dna that has like a defective code mm-hmm. right? so that's a molecule mrna sort of does a similar thing uh, except it's just you have to have the right code that to, to create what you want that replaces a, not enough of a protein or a bad version of a protein right? um so again these are just designed just letter and code that they that it's available and you have this manufacturing process that could make the whole thing so resilience is like very happy to like hey you give us a design and we'll create it for you um so it's very similar to like apple creating a design for like an iphone or um you know some some different chipset and then send it to foxconn and foxconn is already well tuned with making these things at scale so you can outsource your
1: manufacturing
0: exactly
1: Exactly, which allows you to focus all, right.
0: completely on on design. Design exactly. Yeah. Right. So that allows, allows us to focus specifically on like our AI models. Um, that you know, if you if again, if you had this, this base stack at the DNA level, it's all it's all zeros and ones to us. It's it's um, it's not even ATGCs. It's just zeros and ones that we operate in with. Um, how do we interpret a genome model uh, within a neural network? Well, that's all the you know, binary code. Um, so we focus specifically on that and then get these insights, and then we're able to, you know, on down the line have some physical product that changes somebody's life for the better.
1: So the 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 the, the foundational model, how long have you been working on that for?
0: Yeah, so yeah, thank you. The foundational model, um, I've been working on it for quite some for, for quite a bit of time. Just some, just some some history about myself and just also a heads up. I have to step away at, at, um, in about 10 minutes cause I have another call that's coming up. The okay. um, heads up. Um, so this, um, I, I, I was so, at, ooh, how do I start? Um, when I was at Columbia, I had, um, realized that AI is going to be very important for, for understanding genetics as well as diseases. Um, And so much so that I created a company um, called Genetic Intelligence in 2016. So the genetic intelligence is a merger of genetics plus artificial intelligence, genetic intelligence. Um, This turns out to be the first medical AI company out of Colombia. You could arguably say it's the first modern AI company out of Columbia. There's, there's another one, but I'm not sure the approach is what we consider like what's modern AI. Um so genetic intelligence I created to I found in 2016. Um and we did quite well um even though we had to teach people what AI was at the time it was something that just wasn't in the zeitgeist. So we had to educate as much as um, grow our business. Um and um you know we were making like pretty f- Pretty good inroads. Like, we won a National Science Foundation award, uh, which is quite prestigious. Um, they competing with people like sending send satellites to space <laughs> and so forth. Um, and we, we were fortunate enough to win that. Um, you know, we were, I think amongst the first, um, possibly the first to put like an entire human genome within a neural net. Um, and lots of different innovations were like, you know, stra- uh, stratification of different pop- genetic populations. Um and we made it, you know, the company did well by just licensing um these innovations to larger companies, um, the, the pharma companies, um, which was which is good. Um, but after some time I started to realize that we are given away 92 to 97 percent of the value of our innovations. Um so i i started to have a bigger vision consequently um a vision uh, of making designing medicine and keeping the value within the company all the way until you have your product your physical product um so i exited from genetic intelligence 2018 and luckily had um enough a financial financial windfall from that to be able to then dedicate my time um, to some passion projects, which um, that's another story. Uh, but as well as okay, what is what does it look like when you have a company that does like creates medicines with AI? like something that like just wasn't a sentence even before, like you couldn't say that before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent that you know um, some time thinking about that, and then that's the result of that is is um, ecotone and the large genome model that we built in.
1: And so i, I want to go go back how how do you get the data to train your model on?
0: oh yeah yeah so the data comes from various sources um so there's of course you could purchase data so companies such as invitae i think they don't sell but you could maybe possibly partner with them but they're not the only there's several of these companies that have been gathering genomic data and you could just spend um another way to do it is this like repositories that are available um so for instance um, I give a shout out to the Broad Institute, uh, which is a partnership between Harvard and MIT. Um, uh, years ago, when I was when I was uh, just out of college, I, I did a gap year, uh, gap almost two years at MIT, just when the Broad Institute was starting up, um, and they were genetic focused, so we had a similar thinking. Um, well, I was, I guess, joined them um, in my journey later on in the similar thinking with genetics. Um, they have a they have a repository of genome genomes from so Around the world, possibly about two hundred thousand genomes from all around the world, that it's available. Um, and what they ask you is to just to cite them if you use them. Um, Broad Institute is just one example. There's a lot of these um, if you know where to look. This is where, like, unfortunately, a lot of know-how um, is needed, um, and experience does matter in this case. Um, so that's that's like one another example, one one um, type. There's like, you know, you can just buy or you can go to these public repositories, which is broad and through. But then there's even a, a different um, um, class, which is what I call the nationwide efforts, geno- nationwide genome efforts. Um, like an example is the NHS, the National Health Service in, in England, um, like many babies that are being, that are born in England, many of them have their genomes sequenced. Um, and then these genomes go into a clean room that the NHS protects, and then allows and only select groups that they think are innovative and uh, have passed um, sort of you know the salt test for ethics and so forth um, to be able to make to take a look at this this data, um, and with the hopes that the next like you know the next generation of medicines will be. Um, will come out of folks that are studying this data. So genetic intelligence had access to that clean room, um, Ecotone most likely will. Um, and um, and the, the what the NHS exact wants is that, you know, whatever medicines or developments that come out of companies such as Ecotone, that the, the British public uh, is able to benefit from them early on. Um, so that's, in, that's one nationwide effort. There's other ones, like Iceland is way ahead of England. Uh, I think most of the individuals in Iceland have been sequenced. Finland has one, wow. I believe. Um, many of the Western countries, or at least historically it's the Western countries that have, that have these efforts, but now other countries are coming online. Um, for instance, Qatar, as well as Oman, as well as Saudi Arabia, I believe have nationwide genome efforts. Again, the, the what they want is to have first access or early access to the next generation of medicines. We also how important that was during the COVID pandemic where some countries were able to reduce um, deaths by a significant amount just by having early access. And at the largest scale for inherited diseases and genetic diseases, this is also true.
1: That's great. Um, okay, so we're, we we got like four minutes I and I want to leave you some time before your next one. So why don't we... Do you think we should put this on pause because there's a lot more I want to ask you um, about you know th- actually how the process works, how you're who the client is um, you know what the what the like the best possible version of this could look like, what the risks are of this technology being so descent uh, decentralized and there being genomic databases that are kind of open access and people, being able to basically do what you do, like, is there a possibility for uh, like uh, malicious philosophies combined with um, you know this precision medicine to be able to create to create drugs um, like in your basement? I, I in their basement, like I know you're talking about outsourcing the production, but is there a way for people to do that in house? And you know, what are there are there like really catastrophic ways this that this you know I uh, that this incredible technology and potential could possibly go wrong so there's a lot more like i want to ask you so do you think um we could put this put this on pause um and and continue the rest of our conversation another time yeah welcome back thank you for uh joining me again we spoke just now about uh starting off with just kind of an overview you know a recap this is part two of your company's mission kind of the problem that you're trying to solve, why it's an important problem, how you're going about solving it, the team you have in place, and kind of a vision you see maybe for the next few years, and then maybe a longer tail vision that you have. I thought that would be an interesting place to start. So um thank you for being here. I hope to uh continue the great conversation we had last time, and uh I'll let you kind of take it from here. Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah, excellent, Max. It's it's so wonderful to be back on. Part one was really really wonderful um and i'm very much looking forward to part two um so yeah i'll tell you about ecotones so we are here in new york city and we are making ai designed medicines um so that's that's uh sort of a new terminology being introduced to the um to the zeitgeist um but so you just give some insight to what that means It's worthwhile to maybe look a bit back to how we got to this place where AI is all over the news um, and capturing everyone's attention. Um, So about, I would say about 10 years ago, I think I mentioned a bit of this in the first part, in part one, but about 10 years ago, um, we found out in the the ML space, in the machine learning space, that if you give, um, if you give um, neural Nets type of AI, uh, for those who don't know, I'm assuming from this audience, they most likely will know. But if you give Neural Nets enough, enough image data, um, they start to get these emergent properties of being re- really excellent at object recognition. Um, so they could, you know, if you just give them a bunch of like boats, trains, houses, zebras and so forth, um, if you give enough of these images, they've become really good at telling you what's a cat versus a dog, you know, what's a stairwell versus a pillow and so forth, right? Um, and so that was, I was, I call that it, it was a revelation to me personally, because you're just like, wow. Um, and then it was, for me, the beginning of the revolution, I think most people agree, that took us out of, that took us into this new era of artificial intelligence. Um, so postpone into today um, and the latest and greatest takes in complex data. And what I mean by that is early at, at first we we're taking just one type of data, which is image data. So pictures, that's just one kind of data, right? And then we move to more complex data and this is data from websites. Um, so multimodal, sorry, um, data from like Reddit, um, Wikipedia, um and so on and you know um twitter uh, cnn.com all these different websites and they all formatted differently and the large language models, these LLMs, are absorbing all of that data so this is different types of data i call it complex data and that is the basis of, of our large language models and chat gpt and all these emergent things that we are able to sit you know see like some people suggesting this consciousness it and so forth right um but just as a very straightforward progress, single type of data to complex data to today, right? Um, going into the future, we're gonna be putting even more complex data into, into large models. Um, in the case of Ecotone, we're gonna be putting in genomic data, right? So single type of data, complex data, even more complex data in the future, so that we the reason we are doing this is that we foresee that with a large genome model, that's what we call this again another new term. So this is being recorded. I'm going to take the claim for inventing this term or ecotone. Um, a large genome model uh, will be if, if uh, the architecture is correct, we'll be able to discern parts of the genome that are responsible responsible for diseases such as rare inherited diseases. So we at Ecotone are working on trying to find cures for rare inherited diseases. And we're doing that by creating a large genome model an LGM. So this is a new approach. Our architecture is based on a um, a natural phenomena called gene flow. I won't get too deep into gene flow, uh, but suffice to say, it's when um, for any diseases, Back in time, um, perhaps hundreds of years ago, perhaps even longer, thousands of years ago, there was the first individual that had a change in their genome that caused them to manifest the disease. So this individual is, is called a founder um, and this individual had children, uh, some of which had the disease, they carried a genetic element that was in the, that was changing in the founder to these uh, children. And then those children then had children. And some of those children, of course, um, had the genetic element as well. Um, So and so on and so on with descendants. Um, And in the time space that we're talking in, like, hundreds of thousands or hundreds of years to thousands of years, people do not stay in one place. People oftentimes move across countries, across continents. And whenever an individual moves to a new place, a new geography, um, and then they have um children with the folks that they have met there the new population you then in a sense had a flow of genes from one space to another right? um, and that's a vector that's a, literally a mathematical vector it's like a, it has like a space so it has like a um a direction and like a velocity right um so we are building an lgm to detect these vectors and detecting these vectors gives you insight to the original the founder as well as the genetic physical genetic location that is causing this disease. Um, what is the value of being able to do this? Um, so inherited diseases, or just being able to discover genes that allow you to tell what God was causing diseases. Um, it's like' a, it's like a wall. It's being able to cracking a problem, like we'll sort of open up to possibly, hopefully, I'm sorry, most likely about ten thousand inherited diseases, from rare ones that you never heard about to ones that are in the you know in the imagination of everybody, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Those are all inherited diseases. So potential for thousands of medicines to be made. Uh, obviously, we won't be able to make all of those medicines, but cr- we will just cracking a problem will change medicine. This is what we hope. And then if we're able to cure a few of these diseases, we'll be very happy with ourselves. Um and then the actual monetary value, it's estimated to be about a trillion dollars. And so the um the, the rewards of this uh are quite there there for for companies such as ecotone, uh, the incentives. Um it's just being able to do it is what's the most difficult part. Um, and being able to do it first requires identifying that this is a problem. So one of the things that I've witnessed uh, just in conversations that I've had with the medical professions or investors that are within the biotech pharmaceutical spaces, people do not get the direct line to gene discovery and curing disease. This is something that folks uh, from many angles are coming in. I'm talking from surgeons all the way you know, surgeons, general practitioners, to scientists, um, um, to, to, to folks that are just within the space, um, that are active in the space, like gene discovery leads to curing diseases and folks put all kinds of things in between there and focus the energy on it, like doing work with proteins and doing work with cellular therapies and so forth, which we mentioned in the last, in part one, um, and we are sort of cutting the fat, like literally cutting the fat. Um, and you know, I think like Ecotone is uniquely positioned to do this. Um, a lot from my personal experience, uh, where I was within that space studying Alzheimer's disease and doing cellular and proteomic studies on it. And then I, for my for my postdoc, I learned actually what is gene discovery, what is genetics. Um, and how that critical piece of information, what is the physical location causing these diseases is so important to unlock in all these, all these medicines, as well as a potential trillion dollars of value. I sort of dedicated my life to making this happen. And, and uh, this is what Ecotone is doing.
1: Awesome. I think we should go into, or it'd be interesting for me to understand like the number of people that are affected by inherited diseases and then breaking down like more clearly where that trillion dollars comes from. Like I understand the value, but who is actually? Is it individual patients paying for a full body scan and then a personalized uh, kind of drug creation process? And if that is the case, then I can see there being like you know disparities of who has access to this technology, if it's hospitals or organization is what is their incentive there so maybe we could expand on kind of the scope of the problem and then also like where that trillion dollar number kind of breaks down um into
0: absolutely so let's just start uh, get right to the cut right to it like with a trillion dollars where does that number come from um so so to to get at it we have to it's best to focus on one disease and then from there you could expand out um so the disease that is our marquee disease now is called biotinidase deficiency. I'm not sure if I talk about it in part 1. I don't think so. Okay. So the biotinidase deficiency is a good one to focus on because it's a rare inherited disease that um I think affects about 4,000 people in the United States. Um don't quote me on this cuz I haven't looked at the numbers in a while but about 1 in 60,000 people in the um affected uh, by um so just just a high level view of the entiology of the disease um
1: vitamin-
0: what is what is entiology oh sorry yeah is just it's just a description of a disease um uh-huh. exactly um it's um just you know when you when you open up your medical dictionary and you read what does it say um sure. yeah um, so vitamin um uh, deficiency um one is many of these inherited diseases you've never heard of a name of because there's so many of them and they're so rare that it's new to most people, including physicians, when they hear it. Um, and this is an, a classic example of about 4,000 individuals in the United States. It has um, its uh, its phenotype or its what patients that have it um, um, showcase as or present as is they don't have they don't process vitamin B7, which is um, the scientific name for vitamin B7 is biotin, right? Hence, it's called biotinidase deficiency. Um, and the reason they don't have um, retained biotin is the enzyme biotinidase uh, maintains healthy vitamin B7 levels that you take in in your diet and it sort of maintains it within your body. Um, and without that enzyme, you sort of just get rid of it, Um mm-hmm. And you need to have healthy physiological levels of this vitamin, uh, otherwise there's very severe consequences, um, very early in age. So when babies are born, infants um, are born with bad versions of the gene for biotinidase, um, within about three weeks of age, they, they um, usually start suffering from seizures um, if left untreated. Uh, or are diagnosed and untreated about five weeks of age they go into. they typically go into a coma um, and uh, if still left left um, as is by about two they don't usually make it past two months of age they usually pass away which is very unfortunate Um, so so this disease is is quite terrible but luckily there is a very good cure for, sorry, a very good treatment for this disease. It's not a cure. Um, it's, um, it's very cheap. It's very accessible. Um, it's, it's called just give them uh, vitamin B7 tablets, uh, supplements, and just give them a ton of it. Um, so this is the current treatment. If if, if um, these uh, babies are diagnosed well, they, they will just get prescribed vitamin B7. Um, now. There's a catch, though, or uh, caveat. Um, you these babies have to then take that supplement for every single day of their lives, for the rest of their lives. Um, and unfortunately, though, life doesn't life throws you curveballs. Um, so, for instance, during the pandemic, um, some people didn't have access to the supplement. Um, you know, as the world basically come, came to a hold for, for a period of time. Um, and what we what you saw was um, individuals that were like healthy 20-year-olds, healthy 30-year-olds, healthy 40- and 50-year-olds that were on this supplement that didn't have access to it, um, all of a sudden, um, within a period of a few weeks, start to suffer from brain damage, which is permanent. Like it's irreversible. Um so, so there's like a clear need for what we call a once and done precision medicine. Um, so this is a precision medicine that you could give to the babies um, early in life and, and then um, have this precision medicine, correct the bad version of biotinidase in the genome to the, to the, um, to the working version of it. Um, and then these babies could then go on for the rest of their lives without worrying about some, you know, no, not having access to it. Um, there's also compliance issues. Some people just stop taking it, not knowing the consequences as adults, and then they just succumb to brain damage, but that's a whole other story. Um, so yeah, need for a once and done medicine is 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 needed. Um, and we are so this is a rare disease that fits all the check marks of what we are looking for to, to, to treat. Um, and we've Also, one of the good things about it is the the genetic identity, the gene location, the physical gene location of biotinidase is actually known, right? Um, And this allows us as like a young and very vulnerable company, uh, just a few months old, um, to then use this disease as as, um, like a validation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like the risk is reduced. Right. And then this allows us to get stronger. gives us time to build our LGM and then going forward. And we could then start finding out um, diseases for which the genes that are causing them are not known at all, which is a lot of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So so that, so. OK, so now to the numbers, right? Um, how do you get to a trillion dollars? So with biotinidase deficiency. You could start doing numbers like so. The average precision medicine for once and done medicine, you give it one time and that's it. Um, today, it's about two point five million dollars.
1: Wow, per person.
0: Per person, yeah. yeah. Um, it was about three three million last year, now it's two point five, right? Um, so this is expensive, and we'll just get to, to 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 the meaning of that number in a bit, but just try to get the calculation out of the way for the trillion dollars. So. Uh, whoever was rolling their eyes will no longer be rolling their eyes. Um, so $2.5 million multiplied by the number of individuals estimated worldwide to have a deficiency in biotinidase gives you a, um, a addressable market, right? Um, and then you, we, I think we cut down that addressable market by some some fraction. I, I don't know if I can't remember what it, like, uh, number that we use, but this formula that you use to give your standard addressable market um, that is an underestimate because you're obviously never going to reach every patient. Um, so that number is um, the total addressable market for biotinidase efficiency is $377 million. Um, so that's that's for one rare inherited disease. And so you could now do this trick of add addition. We, we, so you just go to the next inherited disease. Mm-hmm. Um, total number of individuals, reduce that by some fraction so that you're going to use an underestimate and then multiply it by $2.5 million and go to the next one, the next one. And you basically have all the way to 10,000 of these diseases to add up to. And when you get to about 10,000 of them, you hit a trillion dollars. That's mm-hmm. basically done, right? Um,
1: can I push? So... Can I push back on that for a sec? Yeah. So wouldn't like as like we move forward in time, and the price of a price of doing the single treatment reduces, wouldn't that you know reduce your reduce the total addressable market? And is the kind of current cost of of the procedure the two point five million? Is that like the right number to be plugging in there or would it, or is the right number closer to like what, you know, what uh, people are willing to pay for it? Like what you could actually like sell the service for because yeah. like a, a lot of the, I'm, I'm guessing the, a lot, most of the 4,000 people in the U S can't pay the $2.5 million to have this yeah. happen. Just to, yeah. just to push back.
0: Absolutely, I love the pushback and I'm going to push that even further again into what a $2.5 million really captures a bit of what you're asking. Um, But just on the the first part that you said about the medication over time, most likely will the price will come down. um, And that would affect that ceiling of a trillion dollars. That's absolutely right. As a matter of fact, we want to be the people that do that. We want to be the first to make precision medicines at scale. Uh, so one of the things that distinguishes Ecotone is from other companies that are within the medical space is most biotech companies that emerge um, sort of have a lifeline that's hanging on being able to produce one drug, right? They have um, discovered something that's important and then they uh, then they, they basically make a living off of that, right? Um and how we get like the big pharmaceutical companies that have multiple drugs well those guys usually do not invent those drugs they just buy up smaller companies that have and that's why they have a portfolio of multiple drugs just give an example when i was in uh, when i my first intern sorry my last internship with in undergrad was at a company called millennium pharmaceuticals like um, that, that company was a re- mid-sized biotech, I would say 2,000 people, um, several hundred million dollars in uh, of funding and so forth. Um, and they had bought a company called Leukocyte, which is a smaller biotech company that had done well by creating this drug for multiple myeloma, which is a type of cancer. Um, so all of a sudden, it looked like melanin pharmaceuticals had two drugs when before they actually had one, and they just bought in mm-hmm. a smaller company, right? Um. So that's that's how it is. Now Millennium Pharmaceuticals has been purchased by another company called Takata Pharmaceuticals. All right. Um, so this is how you see like companies like Pfizer having like a, a drug portfolio, but they weren't built like that from the ground up. That came through purchasing. And these younger companies are built from the ground up. Usually their life hanging on one drug. So Ecotone, mm-hmm. we want to be distinguished by being built from the ground up to be able to make multiple drugs. So how I'm formatting the company to like bringing in people and so forth is always designed to have parallel processing rather than serial processing. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll we'll see if it pans out, but that's the direction that we're going in. Um, and the the um, therefore, we should be able to have a significant impact on reducing the price of these medicines because of economies of scale that we ourselves generate. So there's a lot of parts of drug making that are the same. That when different companies do it, they sort of are redundant to each other. Right? Um. So us. So hopefully, being able to make multiple drugs puts in house those redundancies, so they won't be they won't be redundancies. So they have cost savings instead, right? Um. And that's one way to reduce drug cost, right? Um. So. Okay, so I think that gives you uh, an insight to the, the scale and thing. And we we are happy if a trillion dollar number goes down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we'll, we will still make a good living and we'll still have a strong incentive because that's a mm-hmm. huge number, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. um And also just naturally, like these, these prices are going down. As I said, um, one of the drugs that was made news last November um, in London uh, was a drug that saved the life of one of, of a... One of two babies. There were two babies that were twins, and um, had a rare inherited disease. One one of them was able to get a medicine, and the other one, I think, wasn't able to. So one of that that one passed away. But the one I received the medicine is alive to this day. Um, and that drug, I think, was about three point one million dollars or three point five million dollars. Um, and today, just like um, um about a year later, um, the price has now averaged down from two to two point five million dollars. So that's like that's like a significant you know, 30% reduction in, in the price already. Um, and that's going mm-hmm. to continue um, as the p- space gets more developed. Okay, now for the second part of your question, nobody's going to be able to afford this, right? Um, I, I myself, as a CEO of Ecotone, I am completely sensitive to that because of where I'm from. I'm from the Gambia in West Africa, um, a small country of 1.6 million people. That's like I'm in Brooklyn right now, there's more people in Brooklyn than in my country. Right. Um, And the what people could afford is is um, much less than uh, most individuals in the United States or in Western. Europe. Uh, However, they get inherited diseases just as much as people in the United States and Europe do. So that I I will I am hypersensitive to that uh, for those reasons. as well as me- making sure people that are here in the, in the US are able to access these medicines. So, of those patients that have vitamin deficiency, I hope this this um, my program just keeps beeping over here. I'm just shut it off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the the, um, the 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 cost of the drugs is prohibitive to all but a few people. Let's say Bill Gates's kids. Mm um you know when you close a program and it's just wouldn't close let me try it again
1: no worries i i haven't heard any beeping on my end so
0: oh okay great great okay i think it's gone um people reaching and trying to learn about ecotone Um, (laughs) we'll get to that later on um yeah so maybe like bill gates son okay you know a few billionaires sons um or oh, very high, like hundreds of millionaires most millionaires themselves cannot afford these drugs right um let alone regular joe and jane um so how it's shaped in, out to be is that it will take a what i call a communal effort and the fancy word for communal effort is called a government subsidies to make this accessible. So, in the case that I had just um, cited from England um, with the uh, price tag for the precision medicine for those twin babies, um, the National Health Service, uh, which is the public service for for all things medicine in England, um, they went ahead and made sure the parents never saw the price tag for that medication that saved their baby. and it's looking like that is going to become the standard um, more and more. Um, and the reason is from the um, from the governmental standpoint is twofold. Um, one, if you look at um, these individuals with these diseases uh, and just do do costing across their lifetime times to the healthcare system. So those, those uh, for the, many of these diseases, um, they won't like, they will just have you go to the hospital again and again for 20, 30, 40 years of your life. Uh, and if you add up all of those costs, to the burden to the healthcare system, it starts adding up well into the millions, right? So being able to, to pay $2.5 million is way cheaper than 15 million or whatever the number is for the lifetime cost of that patient to the medical system. So this is one of the reasons why the the governments um once want, want to and willing to subsidize this but um, doesn't right
1: now the like individual like don't citizens pay for their own like a lot of their own treatments like i know i like i don't know too much about like medicare medicare like those like kind of socialized medicines but don't like i know hospital bills and like treatments are like a big problem for a lot of people so does the like currently does does the government take responsibility for a lot of those? I, I know the U.S. might be different from a lot of other Western countries.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So the U.S. is it's it's um, terrible. It's, the health system here is terrible, despite like lots of great inroads that Obama and his administration did. We're still are work like are working with a fragmented system that's sort of sort of um oftentimes difficult for people to find care. Um, that said. Right, precision medicines kind of occupy this new space um where governments want they want to incentivize com- uh, companies like ecotone to create these medicines and they want to make their as they as they're literally their public service, make the next generation of medicines available to their citizens. Right. So um, subsidies then become they make sense at least for 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 that particular class of precision medicine. So lots of other things in the United States the government doesn't touch or only some people are qualified for. Um, but there is no framework for precision medicines. I'm sort of giving you like the direction things are going in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also like really bad um really bad news cycles if like there's like medicines that are available for people um and um the government doesn't step in because you know the medicine so just happens you know that that person just happens to be born 6 years too early um mm-hmm. for the economies of scale to occur um so that's another thing too um uh, but the public trust is is really on the government being able to incentivize the development of the newest newest drugs um and, and these you know these precision medicines that Egoton will make that others already are making like tend to have way less side effects than the current class of drugs that we we deal with like side effects is like a normal it's like a normal word that we use like yeah it, it's it's funny that we have that as you know you have a grandpa's taking a pill for for something and then that that something um has uh, added to it a side effect from that pill so yeah. the doctor describes another pill to deal with that side effect right yeah but then that pill also has a side effect so you, you know you have like a third layer of pill, pill so how given- do you
1: do, like the like the big pharma ph- the big pharma companies how are they going to how are they reacting to precision medicine? Cause it seems like what you just described, the kind of cascading process of, uh, you know, needing more pills for this and this and all the side effects and that, and that, that benefits the big pharma companies. Um, so where do, where, do, like I understand you're trying to um, fit the precision meta- medicine model into the current government framework, but how does that fit into the current like big pharma framework?
0: Oh yeah, the great question. So um, obviously the product is medicines anymore to sell the richer they are, right? Um so I I personally am not a fan of big pharma. I um I make I, I I don't hide that. Um I just I've just witnessed like not so great things within the industry, um, like little with my own eyes, going to conferences and so forth, about the care that some com- some companies have for the individual human, um, where you, s- you start wondering, like, what what bad water do these people drink? Um, that said, um, we have to give credit where credit's due. Um, there is um, a lot of amazing things that the medical industry, the pharmaceutical industry being part of that has done. So for instance, the COVID pandemic um, could have resulted in a lot more lives lost so in going getting close to what happened in 1918 where um, a, a massive amount of people passed away um we could have we were heading in that direction and had it not been for um, Pfizer um, together with innovations from moderna and biotech um, plus others as well but I just label these as the marquee ones um the pharmaceutical industry saved the earth, saved the world, So not the, earth, the people in the earth. Um, so credit where credit's due. Um, there are segments within our population that are saved every day um, due to work from the pharmaceutical in- industry. i highlight another one. Um, heart disease um, was something that was quite troublesome and intractable, um, but statins have been developed and put out by the pharmaceutical industry that saves save lives daily of um uh, older adults um so so you you have this sort of weird equation where you have the greatest innovations that are coming out and like really life-changing ones but on the other hand you have like these you know um greedy greedy individuals that uh that the pharmaceutical industry is not popular for a reason um so i look at it as ecotone and the group of companies like Ecotone, we are coming from a different younger generation. We have a different outlook on how the world operates. We have a different sensitivity than these mega corporations do. So what we, our approach fundamentally is is for me is based out of helping individuals and you have a monetary incentives that are based on that like individuals will gladly whether it's like somebody that could pay 2.5 million dollars or the, a collection of us our community of us the government it's like hey this is really important that you know we have medicines that don't have side effects we have medicines that you take once and you have to work never worry about it we have medicines that save lives right? um, we will be amply incentivized and paid for the work that we do right um, and if that has like a knock down effect on some of the older companies having less revenue, well, that is not for me to comment on that. You know, it's, um, this is going to be multiple companies coming out doing different types of precision medicines. So there's going to be a wave of this, hopefully ecotone will be a leader. Um, and then the pharmaceutical industry will have to adapt, change, move, just like every company and business has to, to survive um so this is just how i how i look at it our job is to do our very best guide to ship the best way we can have human values while we go at it that are core and let the chips fall where they may fall um, as long as we do a good job we will be fine and hopefully everything else will work out for patients
1: mm. and right now does the government give sub- subsidies to the t- to big pharma or no
0: Yes, for some things, yes. Um, so I mean, that's where Medicare and Medicaid come into play. Um, these are massive government government um, programs, um, and there, I think there has been already some um, single use cases of precision medicines being subsidized by by the U.S. government. I'm like 99.9% sure that has happened several several times, mm-hmm. um, and it just there hasn't been enough of these medicines that is like a like a framework, like a, a, a bill in Congress that's passed, like specifically for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so as these medicines come online, that's going to happen. You just need more of them to have to occur. And then there's enough of a, of a, um, energy swell to for that to happen.
1: Awesome. Okay, cool. That, I mean, that seems like a pretty good overview of, of the problem of kind of the practical, how it gets implemented, how it makes money, you know, where you're coming from, uh, the process, um, you want, you want to do like a one minute or try to do like a one minute from like the patient's perspective to being treated, like what the steps are in that process, I guess for a disease, like a rare inherited disease where the, you know, genetic location is known, it's much easier, but like, say someone like, if someone's suffering from something that's unknown, like, I guess, does the, does the disease have to be known before you guys step in?
0: Yeah. So what we, how we would like it, uh, this is going to take, let's say, let's give me two minutes on this one, because I have to cool. introduce this concept of, um, cause we, let's just, focus on babies now, um, just to keep mm-hmm. in line with previous, um, uh, by days, um, mm-hmm. Once we are able to find out what is the genetic location, well, the first thing that we will do is we will ask um, government entities in the U.S. as elsewhere to include it in what's called newborn screening panels. Um, so this is when babies are born. Many of the um, these babies' parents will be asked, would they like the DNA of the baby's sequence to identify any, any um any disease, genetic elements that uh, could, could could cause a disease. Right? Um, so what we will do is, hey, uh, we, we found this gene location. Here's the proof of it. Um, the FDA has looked at it and so forth. Please put into this newborn screening panel of, of the several hundred others' genes that you have, have in your list. Add this one more to that line. So when babies are born and they get the umbilical cord sequence um, and there's a hit, you will know, okay, they have this change in this, particular part of the genome that will most likely cause them to have a disease um, that could occur within weeks or it could occur when they're toddlers or in their adult adolescence or even in adulthood. And um, not to
1: interrupt, but is the sequencing of the umbilical cord already like common common practice? Like does yeah, that already yes. go on for like most babies?
0: Exactly. It's At least it's offered to most babies born in the United States and most Western countries today.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and then rapidly in other countries as well, like for, I believe India has it as well many of the Middle Eastern countries. Um, um, this is one of like, like great work by, the, I believe the UN aspects of the UN and so forth, um, and getting this hopefully into every country. Um, okay.
1: So a baby's born, their umbilical cord is sequenced. They, now there's a genome, there's a list of things that are being, you know looked looked for and you know trying to identify hey if we have them so if uh if there is a hit on one of those or uh what happens next
0: exactly so there's a hit on one of those and this is the one that we identified and like the, the the baby's now been diagnosed with with this change in their genome so we at that point would already have had a precision medicine that we would have made a deal with, with one of the large uh, players, uh, they're called payers. They, they come in different forms, um, such as like insurance groups or multi-hospital groups or government groups like Medicare and Medicaid that would say, hey, Ecotone, this looks great. You pass your FDA trials, clinical uh, stage one, stage two, and stage three. Um, we want 1,000 doses of this medication and we just have it sit online. Uh, um, and when that baby is born, they take the umbilical cord blood, as sequence, and it's like a hit. Then the within the computer of the the, the practitioner, the clinician, um, they will see the available medications, and one of them will be Egotone's medicine. Um, so then the, the, doc, the doctor will make an order for that, um, and in that interaction with, in I it subsidized. Um, you know, if you go to the ph- when you go to the pharmacy here, you know, have like a copay of thirty dollars. Hopefully, it will be just thirty dollars. Um, because on top of that, before the patient, before the baby was born, or the patient even sees that, um, the negotiations have occurred at the highest level of the medical system to say, hey. We're going to, the government, this insurance company and the government or this hospital system, like not a single one, but like a multi-hospital system, and the government have arranged a deal where this hospital system will have these medications made like those thousand doses available for it and the Health and Human Services, the arm of the United States government, is like, you get these $1,000, we'll write Ecotone a check, Ecotone, please make more of these so we could go talk to the next hospital system. But this hospital system is now set to go for all future babies that are born with this inherited disease for the next five years. So the doctor makes an order, the order comes to the patient, the patient never sees the bill or pays like a $30 copay, the baby gets the medication. The medication could come in several forms depending on where it manifests the genetic where the physical manifestation of this gene change occurs. Um, so, for these um, these gene editing medicines that um, these precision medicines um, could come in a variety of ways. The underlying technology inside of them, gene editing, is the same, like it's CRISPR, or mRNA, or something like that. Um, but the modality. So, for instance, if it's a gene that causes blindness, right, there's already work. Um, that shows that you could put these precision medicines in an eye drop. And you could just put it on um somebody's eyes, like a simple eye drop. Um, and that literally has been shown to cure blindness. Like there's wow. multiple public papers showing this. Right. Um there's one a, a, a study just came out um last um, in May, I believe, um, uh, of a disease where the skin uh there was a, a, a genetic location that um, if the gene is changed, the skin of the individuals born with this form of the gene tend to have very weak skin, which then converts into like these big boils that occur mm-hmm. all over the body. Like they like sitting down is like really a pain in the butt because just the small shifts causes massive movements in the skin and it just looks like they just burnt. Right. Um, so just in May, a company um, came out with like, a precision medicine um that it's just it's just you rub it on your skin and, and then it changes that bad genetic element on only in the skin and gives it the the corrected version the working version of it and it's like a miracle cure for for this group of patients um there's a work on inhalers so if it's something that's within your esophageal in your lungs and so forth you can sort of get asthma like inhaler and do the exact same trick. trick. Um, and of course, there's a classic injections like you could inject into the blood. Um, oh, oh, perfect actually. So a paper just came out this week, today is Thursday. This came out on Monday um, on hematopoietic cells. I never could pronounce that right. But these are blood cells um, in the marrow, bone marrow that produce your, your the rest of your blood that goes into circulation. And treating them, treating that has been very difficult because it's inside of the bone, right? So you you typically need bone marrow transplants. Um, So this um, study um, showed that um, the the genetic element causing the disease that, um, it's like a type of sickle cell, I believe, um, is... Is a is a gene uh, that makes a protein called CD one thirty three CD one thirty three. Since this is max depth, I'm sure some people here go deep into this. So CD means clusters of differentiation. Um, and if you go ahead and Google that, you have literally opened up a can of worms into the deepest heart, the d- deepest depths of immunology. Um, and it's a fascinating hole to be, to explore. Um, so CD133 is a gene, and the key thing is we we know we know the gene enough to be able to give it a name, right? Um, which and it has a physical location. That's the key key piece, right? We have it. We have a physical mm-hmm. location. Now you could do this magical tricks, like what they did was instead of making a CRISPR, they made an mRNA, like right? so a messenger RNA. Um, so similar to the messenger RNA that was in the COVID vaccines, the COVID vaccines, uh, because we knew the COVID virus's genome, we able to make uh, a spike protein for it, and then that allowed people to be, to have the vaccine be effective. In this case, they made mRNA for CD133, where you, and then they put it into a lipid nanoparticle and we won't get into that. I talk we talked about it a little bit about Idoato. It's mm-hmm. very similar to the COVID vaccine. A, a, a
1: little and, soap-like particle a little, is, exactly uh, a, a little soap-like particle. A particle.
0: Yeah. Um if if my um my um mentor from when I was um doing my gap year at MIT, his name is Dr. Mark Horworth. Um, Mark, if you're listening to this, I know that from you you teaching me that back back um Back when he was just a young postdoc. Um, now he's the chair of pharmacology at Cambridge in um in England. Um and I could never remember him, I could always remember him like, Yeah, it's just like soap, don't overcomplicate it. Um, <laughs> um but so yeah, so they made mRNA and you inject this mRNA into what has the correct genetic code into the body, mm-hmm. and your know, your body then goes ahead in the blood and just make CD the normal version of CD 133 um, and enough of it to kill the disease that these guys are working on, um, like classic precision medicine. Right? Mm-hmm. And that just came out 72 hours ago.
1: Really cool. So essentially there's this whole, there's, uh, the approach used to administer the precision medicine depends on where, uh, where the problem is expressed. That makes sense. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Um, so I was talking to someone on the plane back from Mexico, who was, I think he was a doctor or professor somehow involved in medicine. And he was really concerned about data, genomic data sharing. And his concern was that if a baby, my understanding of his concern was that if a baby was sequenced, and a you know a rare disease that's said their likelihood of surviving past 25 30 is very low and employers or governments or insurance or wh- whoever um has access to that data then that person is going to be ostracized going to be you know discarded because they're going to say all right this isn't you know we can't do anything with this person this doesn't this person doesn't fit in a normal framework. So he was really concerned about, um, you know, who has access to that genomic data. And this also goes back to what we were talking about um, before about like Web3 and, and data sharing. Um, but I just like, I, it would be interesting to get your response to that. And also if that is a problem um, with precision medicine, because the idea of precision medicine is that, every disease has a cure, everything can be tracked back to the genome. And then once we uh, can find the place on the genome, then we can design a medicine for everything, ideally. So I guess in the best case scenario, this wouldn't be a problem because every disease could be treated. But so I guess part one is, can every disease be treated through precision medicine? And part two is just more broadly about how would you address his concern about uh, patient uh, data privacy and protection?
0: Absolutely. Um, very, very good Like um, question um, is something that's quite prescient. Um, so let me tackle it by highlighting how this is not just a genome problem, but it's sort of a big data, um, especially in this age of AI problem. Um, so I just heard the other day that here in um in northeast um there was a police department that was keeping track of cars using like road cameras going between, you know going up the corridors um from I don't want to be New England states to New York or one of something, you know, some some movement back and forth up in the Northeast, uh, across states, using traffic camera data. Um, And then use an AI on this aggregation of these thousands of journeys that regular people are having to infer routes that is suspected that drug dealers take like there's some sort of um, signature that, oh, I guess all drug dealers leave on Tuesday at 7 p.m. I don't know what it is that they found, but either way, they they, they, they used this as one and stopped him. Turned out that he was, right? But now the lawyers for this individual are rightfully saying this is an invasion of privacy. Mm-hmm. That this is like literally what we scared about. What yeah. plots made out of? Um yeah. Use harnessing big data for, for the state, or just harnessing big data in a way that is that is not cool. Just, yeah. you know what I mean? In- invasive. Not it. It's not cool. Invasive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, and that's just one example. We're gonna keep getting more and more of these because this uh-huh. big data has been around for a while. And mm. finally, we have the tool sets like artificial intelligence- Yeah, to, to analyze. To make,
1: to analyze. Make it, predictions,
0: right? yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I will just give shout outs to some of the people that I know working in this space. Um, the Responsible AI Institute, Ray, um, I think formerly read by my um, friend Seth Robin, Um from, I met him at the AI summit back when he was in New York. Um, so Ray, as well as a, a slew of other um, institutions uh, are, are sort of getting a lot of funding. Um, and new ones are coming up, popping up in universities or independently and so forth. For, for a framework to be put around what's what's about, what is happening, what is going to even become more happening um as as we enter this artificial intelligence era, um so before i say anything i'm going to just defer to those experts because they are while i'm focused hard on making a large genome model this group of of um of researchers and industry leaders um, are working on how we use big data and artificial intelligence responsibly. So credit to them. Anyone interested in that, look at Ray, AI. There's a bunch of other ones. Just look look at responsible AI. I think the European Union has like a, you know, an AI bill that's in the in the locks. Most likely the United States will have one. Um, hopefully other countries. Hi, my country, the Gambia, uh, we've not to be behind on this one, please. Um, but so just want to just you know, this is a huge emergent topic. Okay, so let me then focus on medicine and genomics. Um, do you remember the the Golden Gate Killer? No. So this this was um, this, he was this guy was a serial killer in California, and he was basically a one of those like I don't know lost cold cases, like nobody could figure out who it was uh uh-huh. um, And one of his cousins <laughs> gave his gave the genomic data to like a 23andMe kind of service. It wasn't 23andMe, uh-huh. but it was similar to it. Um, uh-huh. I think this guy was multicoded or something like that, right? So very far from where the, the actual killer was. Um, but there was genetic data that uh, was made available publicly by the service that the cousin used. Um, okay. Which then allowed investigators to triangulate onto the serial killer and find him. Mm. Right. So there was enough shared genetic information um between the cousin, because cousins are what, one-eighth removed, something like that, um, that you could go ahead and um find the Golden Gate killer. Um so again, remember that one eight thing I said earlier, like we carry the histories of our descendants as well as people parallel to us. So they use mm-hmm. that trick to find this, this cold case. Um, now, now, that was great. We got one serial killer off of the road, but opened up a can of worms regarding privacy. Yeah. Right? So they could identify the serial killer. They could also identify basically everybody else in his family who are not doing criminal acts, right? Um, when like when your genome sequence is made available, you make available your family's genomic history and mm-hmm. past as well as present.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and um, right now, um, what it's looking like is at some point there will be enough genomic information that's given out. Um, through like nationwide efforts like this umbilical cord sequencing as well mm-hmm. as this direct sequencing that we should at some point be able to infer basically everybody's genome. Right. So the idea of, of um, hiding in the woods and cutting off your electricity and so forth doesn't work anymore. You have to move to a new school new way of thinking is like okay we have this data if we don't have yours we have somebody close enough to you that we can for yours right so we have to move to how do we manage that responsibly how do we yeah. put in protections right how do we like if we today you you get a prescription from your from your physician you have a um you have a physician patient relationship that is respected by the law like if you go to a lawyer and you talk to a you know a cl- your client you have a client lawyer like privileges that are protected mm-hmm. by the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some some of that in in journalism, even though some of you know it's been knocked down quite a bit. But either case though, represented within the structure of the legal system privacy concerns that are becoming more and more important as genomic data becomes more and more um, abundant. Um, so exactly how that's gonna shape up to be. Um, we'll have to see, but it's 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 within the umbrella of the larger space of big data and AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to form structures of respect, res- consideration of, of of humanity, and protection for those that are vulnerable, um, and and uh, just sort of doing it, doing the right thing, uh, and having it encoded, hard coded in the law.
1: Mm-hmm uh what what does a world look like where everyone's genome is uh either sequenced or predictable
0: um so it, it, i think okay so a real world example is iceland
1: mhm
0: so the genomes of most individuals in Iceland has been sequenced through nationwide efforts led by a company called Deep uh, Decode Genetics um, that was, they were spearheaded us in the 90s and 2000s, I believe, um, but and together in collaboration with the government. So most Icelandic individuals uh, either have a genome sequence, and even before they had a the genome sequence, you could infer their genomes from other mm-hmm. uh, yeah. um um so what it looks like to a regular day icelander is like if you go to a bar you're having some drinks and you meet somebody that you're attracted to sitting so next to you what most icelandic people do today is they pull out their phones and they go on an app and check if that's a cousin
1: wow that's that's ridiculous that's crazy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Interesting.
0: So that's, that's the, that's the evening times that might
1: Interesting. Okay. But there is there the concern, like the concerns, like you're, I mean, I understand the, you know, building a company is really hard and doing what you're doing is really hard. So it kind of, um, you kind of are just saying, this is a really big problem. There are a lot of people working on it. Uh, we fit in this You know, our problem is situated within a larger problem and there needs to be like, you know, some type of legal relation, like legal structure that like, what is the ideal, like, ideally, what would it look like? Because you're saying that everyone's genome is going to be sequenceable. It's going to be available. So in that case, could you even have like, what, what would a legal framework even like look, I don't know, do you have thoughts on that or is it just
0: is it just out of yeah. well, I mean, so the put the spotlight at Ecotone is great for our machine learning models, right? It's um yeah. Like we we get are getting data from all over the world, it's the more representations of different heritages we have. Um mm-hmm. I think I mentioned last time it's thought to be around like between seven and eight hundred heritages. Um if you if you count. Other other counts go to maybe fifteen hundred, um, but we want to be able to have representations of all of those. We want that you know that tribe within Papua New Guinea that you know represents this unique identity. We want that group in Fiji. We want that group in yeah. Um, you know, in in um, a subsegment of the Norwegian population, for instance, right? Um, so the more of this data out there. The, more, the better of our large genome you know, models work. Um, yeah. So that, which is great, it's great for us. It's, it's great yeah. for medicine, right? Yeah. Um, and as far as with, with indiv- individuals, I think what we have to do is start looking at companies that were early adopters of, countries that were early adopters of this, like Iceland. So what, what is Iceland's framework for maintaining patient privacy within that app, for mm-hmm. instance, right? Um, providing a public service while um, maintaining privacy. Um, one of the funny things about sort of the, the Nordic countries is they have this combination of, of um, very strong data protection while much more evasive approaches compared to the US government to patient, also individual data. Um, So I'll cite Denmark, since I'm quite familiar with it. I spent a few summers there. Um, They have this thing called a CPH number, which is um, similar to the social security number we have here. Um, But that CPH number has a ton more information behind it. It has, um, Sweden as well has this thing. Um, It has like your apartment, the size of your apartment, Mm. how many rooms are in your apartment what your previous apartments you were, you lived in. Mm. Um your income level, your monthly bank in, like in statements coming in and out. Yeah,
1: your, tons of personal your, data.
0: Your, exactly. Your prescription data.
1: Yeah.
0: Your genomic data. Yeah. Right. Your police records.
1: Uh-huh.
0: All of these things are tied to a single number. Uh-huh. Yet yet you would ask most Danes, um or, and I think you could just most can Canadians um, trust in their government and their systems of privacy. They think that the United, United States is more, more uh, loose with privacy compared to, compared to their approach. Right? So Dave, his, before genomic data came online, they already had infrastructures to have different data sets in containers. So mm-hmm. if you go to a judge for some trial, the judge only sees the relevant information for that. If you go to the doctor, the doctor sees only relevant information for that. If you go purchase purchase on a vehicle, you know, the finance company only sees information important for that. And now in genetics, like basically containerization. Um, mm-hmm. So that could be and one so approach. That's the,
1: and the government's job, it's the, you know, part of the government's job to determine if- you know what data is relevant, uh, and also like that demand, like you know that's sat upon uh, a trust in government, which I don't know if you know I don't know if we ha- if you know if we really have. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's interesting that uh, yeah, look to those countries, but then like you know every country's you know obviously different, so can something that worked in one country not you know not be applicable in another country does like you know scale matter does different systems that the different countries have matter so it's interesting
0: yeah it's you're right i mean so the united states is built on a competition or i call it a laboratory model like you have 50 different space states which are all different laboratories uh-huh. and therefore for any given experiment there's a chance that you have multiple different outcomes, um, and some of them are leaders, and some of them are, are not leaders, and mm-hmm. that actually fosters the innovation space within the United States. Mm-hmm. It's um, that's actually a, a future. It's it's it's, um, it's something that you want. Yeah. Um, now, nothing is free, right? Um, so the downside of that is fragmentation um so every state has their own driver's license information um so if if you if you run a red light in one state and just move to another state you could you could technically never pay that red light ever right it doesn't if you if you run a red light in massachusetts and you move to washington to uh you in virginia right mm-hmm. you could just be like you know i'm um, never going back to to massachusetts okay that's your bill now right mm-hmm. um so that's fragmentation and that occurs in the medical system a lot um, at like a bigger scale and a much more important scale than running it up, even though you shouldn't run out a red light. Um, mm-hmm. when, when it comes to, you know, it's um, fragmentation is very very um, divisive and inefficient um, in the medical system. Um, so the part of the this is why you have the United States has these two sort of contrast and dualities one side of it is is the most innovative, all the best medicines are coming out of the United States. Um, And other countries are, uh, we sort of suppliers of innovation to other places in the world, Um, highlighted by the COVID vaccine, Mm -hmm. right? Um, On the other hand, other countries who are not as innovative have better medical systems than we do, right? So we get innovations that are not managed well. Other countries don't do innovations. We give it to them and they manage it well. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have to do better. Um, How that that doing better looks like, um, whether that means that you have some spaces that are more unified um, and then allow some spaces to be even more fragmented so you could push more of that laboratory competition outcome thing. Um, innovation thing happening um, that that is a huge, huge sort of um, high level um, problem um, that I think many people are working on. Hopefully,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Just going going back to that, um, what you're talking about, like the kind of almost like a unified identity against uh, across all the different kind of realms that people interact with. You know, from Financial to medical to you know school schooling and legal having that all tied to one identity so so interesting like I mean obviously like in China we're seeing like you know things like social credit scores play out where I'm guessing like they have something like more similar to that like you know a centralized identity so I just I imagine as if that's like a trend that you know people's identities are being kind of you know, all of their different aspects of themselves are being aggregated to, you know, centralized points. Who has control of that? Uh, and like how that information is like stored and secured and, you know, who's able to look it at, like who is, when you were using the term like relevant, like I imagine, like I can imagine like a car company or, or some, you know, some fields claiming that, um, you know, a medical um, data is relevant for them. Um, because, you know, it factors into the decision and, you know, all this, these kind of things like, um, so I, that, and, and I think it also, I think it might be similar, um, to like the big data problem that we were talking about before. So that is, um, you know, an, an interesting thing that we kind of have to figure out. And I guess everyone's running their own little experiments on what it could look like, like China's doing their own, of. um. You know, making that making that uh, a matter of public record, and um, you know, instead of is this person your cousin? Is this person um, does this person recycle? Does this all, all those type of things? So, uh, I'm I'm not sure uh, what you know if that's going to increase trust. If that's you know what kind of effects that's going to have on people to people relationships uh, in addition to, you know, people to institution, uh, relationships, but it's, I'm glad we're at least thinking about it and maybe it'll prompt other people to think harder about it too. Um, before, before we go, I, um, I wanted to touch on what I was talking about at the end last time. Um, this idea that's been around for, you know, kind of a while of, um, you know, having, you know, when things are decentralized and when you can, uh, like, Kind of do synthetic biology in your basement you know to whatever degree that is possible today maybe you know uh, we could talk about too um but just the ability for people to you know create create things uh without without over oversight um you know I listened to a guy named Daniel uh, Schmachtenberger. Uh, Really, really, really smart guy. Probably the smartest guy I've ever heard speak online. Um, And he, you know, gives the analogy or the example of, you know, when people are working on, um, like, you know, when people are building nuclear weapons, you can see, I think, uh, like the radiation or or the footprint of it from satellite images. But if people are, uh, you know doing experiments with diseases or um you know whatever it may be um in their basement there's no really way to um you know have that have that oversight um and then it brings up kind of this this fork in the road between all right well do we just let people let people do this um and hope that there isn't like you know the unabomber philosophy of either there's too many people or, you know, the world is is cursed, something like that and, and letting that run wild. Or do we take the fork that seems like, you know, China's road and which uh, is their solution is increased surveillance, um, you know, with under the guise of, or with the hope of, I guess in the most positive sense of increased safety. Um, so I think we should touch on, uh, you know, the ability for people to create diseases, pathogens, whatever at home, uh, the kind of effect, like the negative effects that could have, I mean, I'm like, you know, people designing viruses for malicious purposes, are they like combined with this, like what everything we've been talking about of, you know, open genomic, um, you know, data sources, you're saying like, these are open sources and people can access them and contribute to them um is there a solution is there um you know like w- are is there things that need to be done to reduce the likelihood of that happening
0: oh that's a, a charged question um big time
1: yeah big time that's that's why we're asking it <laughs>
0: um i mean so this is my just my opinion um because it's it's not my real house i'm on this this side of the fence of creating medicines that save lives that improve lives like that, that that um reduce suffering absolutely um, so i'm on team human here right absolutely uh, but
1: with every like you know people yeah. say tech, technology is agnostic no, that was so sad. we're we're using the technology for good obviously that's you know we're about yeah. love and compassion and helping people But there are people that aren't, or there are worse wars to be fought. uh, And you know, are there like with new technology comes greater responsibility? Are there a way we, the quote unquote good team, uh, can can structure things or do to um, you know reduce the the chances of of you know bad actors? Something like that.
0: Yeah. So so one of one of the best approaches towards that. Um is what I call uh, sometimes good offense is better than defense. Um that is that and what that means is that if there's something that's gonna be discovered, the question of how it's used first usually depends on who discovered it. Right. Um, Because then you have this effect of path-dependent locking. So how it's first used usually dictates how it will be used down the line. Um, So path-dependent locking is something that, like, um, um, but there's a recovery to be discovered. It's like a foot race to it. It's better that whoever is going to be using it for good gets there first because they'll probably use it for whatever they think it is versus somebody that has ill will get in there first because they'll just do it with a reflection of what they were thinking, right? Um, so in a, in the space of AI, in the space of AI in medicine, um, it's, I feel like it's critical for me to work, wake up every morning at 4 a.m. and get to work um, before some rando somewhere with ill will gets to the things that we want to get to. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, that's called good offense. Uh, oftentimes will be good defense. Even though I'm a big fan of defense, but this is this highlights it just because of the fact because of path dependent lock-in which is a very powerful force it's one of the reasons why we have a competitive edge against like a big pharmaceutical companies um we are starting from fresh and we determine our path while they lock into whatever kind of thinking that already have and they mm. have a hard time into ai they have a hard time shifting to precision medicines and so forth right so path dependent lock-in is one of the most powerful forces known um so that's that's a philosophical approach. Um so more on the road or on the ground. Um I would I also I would say that the governments have to take responsibility for for and engage with individuals as far as educating individuals, what like genomic data, precision medicine data is very importantly what AI is. Um, I've been doing as a public service, literally for my my community here in New York City, these salons um, every few months now, where we just gather people that are interested in the topic and teach them what the heck AI is and try mm-hmm. to get rid of this very terrible thing that some groups within AI are propagating that it's a black box. It's mm-hmm. something that you cannot understand. It's not for you, it's beyond you. It's, let me take care of this, right? You don't have any agency in this. Um, that is terrible, right? Like everyone should be able to understand what AI is. It is not a mystery. Anyone listen to this? It is not a mystery. We know exactly how it works. And the next versions of it will know that as well. It's just, you gotta open, it, open it, the trunk and look into to see what's inside and, you know, If it's not in your forte, somebody that you trust should be able to understand it, right? Um, So we don't want to foster defeatism within a population because that allows for folks with ill-intent to have more space to operate.
1: I agree with, yeah, I agree with that, that people shouldn't be scared away from things. And if you are scared away from something, you should go headlong to it. That is, uh, I agree with that philosophy 100%. Yeah,
0: so I found it quite difficult that open AI, uh, Sam Altman, um, went to Congress um, and together with a few others were saying, oh, this thing we're making is so powerful. Oh, my God, come give us protection and save us from ourselves. Right? Um, that's the narrative that 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 they were using to essentially inst- inst- like instill fear. Right? Rather than openness, open AI, they were instilling fear. And some people say they were doing that for strategic reasons because they'll just shut the door down on future competitors. That's one reason, but that's, mm-hmm. it's on the side. But mm-hmm. what it does to my mother and my sister and people mm-hmm. close to me is like, they feel like, oh my goodness, how can I even bother to try to learn what mm-hmm. this is? Like, this guy is who's the expert in this, saying that it is so ter- it is so difficult to understand that he needs the government to come help, you know, give mm-hmm. him some protection. Um, there's another narrative that was available. He could have went to Congress and said, hey, this is what AI is. I'm going to show you some charts. And some of it is going to be difficult. But if you put enough time into it, you will understand exactly what it is. And if you don't have enough time to put into it, your clerks, their job is to put in that time and give it to you in a way that you could digest. Mm -hmm. Are you going to take enough time? Because I'm here and I'm going to make it available to you. We're going to get rid of this box idea and we're going to all become informed citizens.
1: Yeah, I like that.
0: So he didn't use that narrative, um, um, but that narrative is going to continue to be propelled. So the the first narrative, the one of fear and um, you don't have agency, let us take care of you, is going to get propelled, and that's going to allow individuals, um, to to just literally have more room to operate in the dark, and then we, we deal with the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. If somebody's doing something shady, it's your neighbor. You see them in the garage, and you don't—you're not really sure. Like, oh, they have a lot of computer servers. Oh, interesting. So forget even the biological stuff. AI is mm-hmm. even technically much more more. Um... Biological warfare is obviously very terrible, but what we what folks could do with AI. Um... And take advantage of the the fact that to move in space, um, much more new compared to biological stuff, just means that we should give much more attention to AI at this point. Um, So somebody just has like a service space, and you know they're doing all kinds of stuff, blah blah blah, and you go by and hang out in the garage and have a beer with them every so often. And they tell you a bit about what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. And they use words like something like, we use this pandas database to make this multi matrix multiplication that is allowing me to do this, this, and that. Right. And you're like, oh my goodness, all that went over my head. Right. Pass me another beer. Let's chill out, kick out. Right. Yeah. Um, you are not an informed citizen because somewhere in there, he could have told you that he was doing some naughty shit that he shouldn't be. Yeah. Right. But because the powers that be have primed you to be, to just feel like you don't have any agency. Yeah. You don't listen. And when a, a key word was given to you that you could be, that could be useful in protecting lives, you just dismiss it and grabbed it, and instead of requested a beer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So yeah. It's your it's
1: responsibility where... to be perspicacious and to be ready to, um, you know, be one, uh, you know, Desirous of understanding how things work. So you you we were talking you were talking about. Do you want to just like characterize like, talk about how you characterize like the risk landscape of AI?
0: Yeah. Um, so maybe we can make this maybe the last or the second to last question. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: La- I think that's good.
0: Okay. Excellent. Um, um the risk landscape of AI. So I, I would I would say we are in a new era and the first risk is people not accepting that right It's um, just not accepting that this has happened mm-hmm. right um, So when the industrial revolution, occurred um I was just uh, watching this this um uh, documentary that said like you know individual artisans like you know would be able to like, have like a, a piece of string turn into making something physical mm-hmm. maybe they could deal with two strings um I guess two hands um do that but then mm-hmm. we are able to move from that to to um, multiple different, um, like eight strings, and then all the way up to 112 strings that some um, that machines are able to do. Therefore, um, an individual is able to make one shirt a month, all of a sudden that individual is, one person is able to now make 1,600 shirts in a day. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was the kind of change that people were facing there. And that was tough for some people to face. Um, because it was sort of beyond imagination and it's happening right in front of your face, right? Mm -hmm. But it's still on conception. that Mm -hmm. that resulted in movements that uh, um, that I think we'll see reverberations of. So instance, the the Luddite movement, uh, where folks went and started to burn factories.
1: Luddite Um, is kind of just like a rejection of change.
0: Yeah, rejection of change, or in this case specifically for industrial revolution changes,
1: right?
0: Yeah, um, and I want to say that the Luddites were right on a bunch of things. Um, so, industrial revolution is part, in in large part responsible for the climate crisis that we're in today. Completely, um, right? Um, so, we have to acknowledge them, right? And um, we also so truths tend to be multidimensional. dimensional. Um, so the end of the, the industrial Revolution also brought tons of people out of poverty,
1: yeah
0: and um, and plus other knockdown effects of that, yeah. um, like med- medicine and life greater lifespans and so forth. Yeah. Um, so but imagine going from two strings that you could handle because you have two hands just being and making and one object out of that in a month to being able to make sixteen hundred in one day.
1: Yeah, exponentially right. more yeah. kind of
0: capacity. So we are now moving into that space with artificial intelligence, right? Um, so I, I think I, I kind of hint at two things that um, just risk to consider. We will see a reverberation of the Luddite movement right? as, as as folks who write feel like WTF, like I think this is too much, right? Uh-huh. Um, And I think another thing though, is something outside of the industrial revolution um, is we're gonna see a lot more jobs available as the knockdown effects of being able to handle a lot more information sort of come to be. Um, So this is, can we, this is the, what date is it? This is August 3rd, 2023, right? so i i'm putting my my timestamp on this one uh hopefully i'm right um but right now as of august 3rd 2023 people think the opposite right? yeah we lost right um which which it there is there's going to be attrition for a ton of jobs those jobs are just yeah. going to disappear yeah, yeah. a whole bunch of new jobs are going to come about um and we'll, we'll we'll have to adapt and there's also i don't know what the effect of the negative stuffs um is going to be um but um so obviously the second risk is the one that's in the movies um so ai is going to take over everything um we're going to be um what do you call it just um, have no agency and yeah. be dictated by what, what ai whatever forms it is comes to mm-hmm. tells us terminator um was a book animal farm um mm-hmm. i should not sure if you read that yeah uh, where we just we i think animal farm um the humans just ate grapes and wine and had a dandy time and all became short fat um useless people because everything else was just taken care of them sort mm-hmm. of like pigs. we became pigs basically i think that was the analogy in in, in uh, animal farm mm-hmm. um and I hate that I use very charged words that body shaming and so forth. So I just want to say I recognize that. No, we're using um, the
1: analogy from
0: the book. Exactly. Yeah, analogy from the yeah. book. Um, but in either case though, that's the thought that AI is um so decision making is gonna be taken um up up level to AI because humans make don't consistently make good decisions all the time. Um mm-hmm. when we see versions of that with self-driving cars where sometimes the statistics suggest that it could be safer than human drivers um, to other other spaces. Um, So I am solidly on team human um, as one that makes AI myself with my own hands. I am on team human. There's a leveling up of decision-making processes. Uh, That means me as a programmer is creating an AI agent to help me make better decisions much like having a watch on your hand allows you to know exactly what time it is. You have the data rather than guessing as like we used to. Mm-hmm. I have something that allows you to absorb more information of the world so you could make uh, more astute decisions. Mm-hmm. Right? So this is so just every person is just gonna have a lot more like verified better information.
1: Superpower. Uh, a little bit.
0: Well, it looks like superpowers to us looking forward, but to those people, so just being it's not. like when, want, yeah, when a t-shirt is made now, like yeah. in like a few seconds, we yeah. don't think we don't, it's not a heartbeat. But somebody in the seventeen hundreds would be like, yeah, what sorcery is this? You know, yeah, it's it took it took me a month to make that, and you you just made a few thousand in a few seconds. Yeah, uh, so it, it will look like magic to us, but it won't be magic to individuals then and those individuals will be humans um, and there will be computational systems moving around doing stuff working right Um, And guess what? Humans are also going to be working because the next guy behind you is also doing the same thing and is trying to get an edge. But whatever they're doing, like I'm trying to make a better farm, I'm trying to make a better company, I'm trying to become a better nurse, I'm trying to become a better doctor, I'm trying to become a better scientist, I'm trying to become a better economist, a better lawyer. Whatever it is, your competition space is also doing that. So you won't get to sit back and eat grapes like the animal. It's just that everybody has just leveled up. Mm -hmm. Right. Um so I don't see that as like a risk. Um I don't see a um like if you you know I I just don't see that um happening in the way that the, the, the um the 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 some visions of that are portraying um in movies and in culture right today. Um so that's the second risk though. Um and I think maybe like a third, a third risk would be, and we could make this as a final, final one to close up on. Um, so I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to try to just give a full picture here. Um, So AI is very energy intensive. We are in the midst of a climate crisis. Um, One of the existential threats to to ecotone is can we get enough GPU servers? Can we get enough GPU space? GPUs create heat and that heat oftentimes, um, sorry, the energy to create GPUs to work, forget the heat, just for them to work. Oftentimes, it's coming from carbon sources. Um, and right now, there's a foot race around the globe to have larger, bigger like uh, models, AI models. And mm-hmm. this is causing an increased draw on carbon. Um, now, that has no one's talking about it as much yeah I think there was like a new cycle around 2020 about that but there's going to be one most likely in in the near future on the the actual draw of these models um I just want to highlight two things that people forget about creating a model uh, is actually very energy intensive um however once it's done you're done with it so open AI chat GPT um, GPT 3.5 for instance which is done doesn't really draw any more energy as creation, right? um, what the energy draw comes from is every time you query on ChatGPT's website to to the model, it spits out a a response to you, and that's an energy movement. Right? Um, so that's that becomes a much louder cloud cloud <laughs> pun intended of energy draw. Um, so as these models, you know, grow and grow, and more and more people are using them, it becomes the Google next Google, and so forth. Um, the energy use is going to be more and more greater, and just to be sensitive to the climate change crisis, the human caused climate change crisis that we are in right now, we have to um, pay some respect to that. Um, now, there's solutions that folks are working on. So Microsoft is putting servers underneath the water up in, I think, off the coast of Scotland is is the beta test for this um, to allow these GPUs to be cooled better. Therefore, um, the infrastructure to cool the GPUs itself is taking up carbon. So if you could just put them underwater, you could run them faster without having to make these big air-conditioned like server spaces to to keep these GPU spaces cooler. is coming online, wind power, and particularly my favorite, solar power that should be able to, um, if we just become wise and move faster, change our grid to become much more solar um, and make infrastructure so that places that have a lot of sun are able to have interconnects to places that do not have an overabundance of sun. Mm-hmm. You know, um, classic problem in like Northern Africa and, and Europe. Europe doesn't have that much sun, Northern Africa has a ton, but there's no electrical interconnects. So it's an infrastructure issue, multi-governmental infrastructure. Just connect the plugs, people, right? That's what it takes. Uh, and build the infrastructure, you could connect those plugs. Um, this is this is essential for us to be able to to reduce the footprint of AI at a planetary scale development of more solar, more wind, um, as well as having the distribution of it, such as with interconnects and of course, like batteries um, and all those like emergent technologies that are coming online. Um, you know, nothing is free. So AI models, every time you chat, type into chat GPT, you contribute to climate change in some very small infinitesimal amount. Um, but in aggregate, it is significant. And I think that one of the biggest risks that hopefully we'll we'll abrogate um, one of those risks is increasing the temperature due to these AI models. And I hope that we move very fast on the um, technologies such as solar, um, particularly solar, to to um, reduce this footprint.
1: Awesome, nice. What do you think? End it there was yes, great so good idea. all right sweet yeah that was great thanks a lot
0: oh uh, thank you yeah that was, so that was an hour, and 45. hour
1: 45 yeah hour 45 jesus so we're so <laughs> the last I, I i cut our ours down to 40 minutes from before so maybe i'll try to get this down a, like a little bit shorter just i don't know i'll, I'll try to find some stuff some stuff to cut out most of it was pretty pretty rock solid um i thought it was really interesting um but I'll try to, if I don't do it today, I'll do. I'll finish it by tomorrow. Um, and I'll try to have like a finished version. And then maybe from there, I can try to cut some pieces up and have one be like, uh, you know, Echo Tone trailer, one be like, you know, a background, one be the problems, something like that. Um, so I can maybe try to cut it up in different ways that might be cool for you to share. Um, but yeah, it was great meeting you. And um, we'll, we'll, I mean, we'll stay in touch as, you know, as I post and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, it's pretty cool what you're doing. Um, I never really like really thought hard about, um, this problem before, um, or the new ways, uh, the new technology and the new ways the technology is being, um, deployed, especially like, you know, with such a positive humanist outlook looking for solutions, um, which I'm all about. So, It's always good to see people working on problems that you wish you were working on or wish you could work on doing it right. So that's really cool. So I definitely wish you all the best. Um, And, you know, if you when you start talking to investors or if you do or need any help with, you know, organizing materials or anything like that, I'll be in school this year. Um, but I'd love to just stay connected, um, and help in any way and just, you know, continue our connection because it's really interesting. And I liked, um, liked all the conversations we've had so far. So thanks a lot.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Max. You, you are a great interview, interviewer. Uh, and I, I hope I did a good job as an interviewee. Uh, yeah, you, have you, a you have a knack. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I, I also, I think you uh, interviewed a friend of mine from, from the Salk Institute.
1: Yeah, Kasora.
0: Kasora. So, Kasora was part of this, this notorious group we had at Columbia called Neurostorm. Um, so, way back then. Um, and you, you did an excellent interview with him um and that actually was very influential in me like hey let's go ahead and do this um so yeah. I think you're just going to get really amazing people um and I'm I'm a big fan already I'm looking forward to the next ones that you have
1: awesome well maybe you uh if there's anyone you think that uh might be interesting for me to speak with um I know we were talking yeah. about like the AI ethics and the solutions around that that would be interesting or anyone that pops to mind um as you know, I'm pretty open to, you know, what, what type of ideas and fields I explore. So if anyone, if anyone comes to your mind, don't uh, hesitate to, to connect, because I think that'd be pretty cool.
0: That's, that sounds great. I I, I definitely will. I'll keep that eye open. And um, yeah, and if you're ever in New York, just let me know, grab a drink.
1: All right, sweet. Sounds great. Um, and we'll stay in touch. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot.
0: Uh, thank you. All right, you take
1: care. Cool. See ya.
0: See ya.